0: Hello again and welcome to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM, also available online. You can stream and listen to us live at www.radionorthland.org. Also at that website, uh, you can check us out if you don't happen to uh, pick us up uh, on Sundays at noon. If you don't happen to get the live show, you can listen to uh, archived episodes. We are now in our seventh season of Wrestling Memories Then and Now, so you've got some really good stuff, really good uh, interviews uh, through the years. Uh, we're also available on the TuneIn apps. That's uh, free, and they've got a lot of good stuff on there, aside from uh, 90.1 uh, KSRQ. Well, enough of all of that. I- I'm Glenn Broggett, welcoming you in. Uh, the grizzled Vet, Mike McCurdy, is on assignment. He's always busy looking for more potentially entertaining guests and uh with their with their stories to tell and you can check out the recent uh discovery that mike made uh, with miranda gordy daughter of terry bam bam gordy on a recent wrestling memories then and now well we have a returning guest to the program and we've got we're gonna have a focus on the show today uh with with our special guest uh we're gonna discuss pro wrestling in chicago and the Chicago Wrestling Club Incorporated, the CWC, from the years 1966 to 83. Of course, we'll we'll talk a little bit about a little bit pre, beforehand about the about history in Chicago, just to kind of shade you in on some of the main characters. But we're going to give you a, a nice overview of uh, 1966 to 1983, what it was like with the Chicago Wrestling Club. And let me tell you, it's got a lot of big names in here, big players like from Bern Gagne, Dick the Bruiser, Wilbur Snyder. Crusher, Dr. X, the Chicago area, the amphitheater, you think about classic matches there, Bob Luce, who uh, we're going to figure and find a little bit more about, learn a little bit more about here. Uh, We're AWA country, so we can definitely, uh, definitely get an ear to this uh, great, great uh, part of the United States, Chicago, the Chicago Wrestling Club with our guest who's going to fill us in on a lot of this uh, history. He, we had him on uh, last year. Uh, must have been a year, almost two years ago now, when he released his uh, book about Dick the Bruiser called Bruiser, the world's most dangerous wrestler. Out Out still here on uh, Scott Teal's wonderful company, uh, Crowbar Press. It's uh, wonderful to have him back on, and it's wonderful that he uh, decided on a theme for today, and it's a really fun theme, so we're going to get on it and see where the the road takes us. It's always a pleasure to have uh, back on the program Mr. Richard Vychek. Thank you so much for stopping by here on Wrestling Memories Then and Now.
1: Hey, Glenn. It's great to be here, and I hope to tell people up in Minnesota about an interesting chapter in professional wrestling. Very, uh, very near and dear to your American Wrestling Association because they were a Mm -hmm. major uh, part of the Chicago Wrestling.
0: Oh, oh, most definitely uh, the AWA uh, Association with the Chicago Wrestling Club. Uh, Definitely uh, an integral uh, company, uh, as well as uh, the WWA, the World Wrestling Association from Indianapolis. So uh, definitely uh, near and dear to us, AWA fans, uh, the old school fans who were around and following it back in the day, to some of us younger guys who may not have been uh, alive for it. But we have uh, found this appreciation through the years, whether uh, we... We, we follow it through the older magazines we can find or uh, YouTube or just history books. Uh, there's been so many wrestling biographies through the years and autobiographies. So there's just a lot of stuff that can really get a person fascinated with the, the Chicago Wrestling Club in, in Chicago. Kind of a similar thing, would you say, uh, to uh, what St. Louis was doing with their standalone uh, town. and Not really being a territory per se, but being a, a big meeting place where you could have a, a real melting pot of, of guys wrestling uh very very much a sort of a similar deal wouldn't you say
1: Yes especially cuz sometimes in Chicago we would see a match between an AWA wrestler versus a wwa wrestler and the first one that comes to mind in the early 70s AWA had superstar Billy Graham on the, on the roster well he would come to Chicago and do an arm wrestling match against WWA's Yukon moose Cholak. so that uh, so that helped so that was an interesting benefit for us Chicagoans because we got to see the of both of those youth both of those associations.
0: It was sort of like a monsters of the Midwest when you when, and Chicago just had to be that right in the center to be such a, a lucky and great beneficiary. But when you when you think about it though, uh, what a great town uh, for, for, for pro wrestling. Uh, we, we're going to go back a little bit further uh, to uh, pre days before uh, the Chicago Wrestling Club got uh, you know formed and everything uh, started rolling on. Well, I mean even before then, uh, it was a great wrestling town and a lot of that uh, reasoning uh, as to why it was so successful and had such a presence, was uh, one of the main players here, one of the earlier players uh, prior to 66. We're talking about Fred Kohler.
1: Yes. Uh, Fred Kohler started promoting the International Amphitheater and the Marigold Arena starting in 1949. He produced one of the first nationwide wrestling programs, which came from the Marigold, from 49 to 1955 on the now defunct Dumont Television Network, uh, and if, maybe a lot of you wrestling fans, some of you have a Wrestling Life magazine, which pub- was published from 1954 to 64. Well, that f- Fred Kohler was one of the forces behind Wrestling Life magazine.
0: So it was it, it was a it was, was, a, gr- it was a groundbreaking in- magazine. It, it was one of the first yeah. of its kind,
1: really. Yeah, and it's, it was the editorial offices were right in the in the wrestling offices at the Marigold with uh, Robert Luce, uh, being uh, Robert Luce, a press agent and photographer, having a big uh, role in that publication. And we'll come back to Bob Luce, but you know, Kohler was really a big. You know, he was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. Of course, the AWA and the WWW uh, F would not come about until at least 1960. So here, he's a NWA member with a national nationwide TV contract. And of course, he had... The cream of the crop of national talent. Ganya, Rocca, Schmidt, Snyder, Fez, Rogers, Bruiser, Yukon Eric. In fact, one of the most famous wrestling cards of all time, it was on June 30th, 1961, at Comiskey Park. It was, that's where Buddy Rogers defeated Pat O'Connor uh, for 38,000 fans. And they had a $148,000 box office. By the way, that was co-promoted with Vince Senior. So at, when, he, when he was big, Kohler really was on top. But, you know, a whole succession of events, you know, he lost his nationwide TV, and there were the, the speeds with the NWA, and he lost some of the wrestler relationships, and then the crowds diminished, and then he had a horrible uh, experiment using renegade promoter Jack Pfeffer to put out sound-alike imposter wrestlers.
0: Oh, that's really when you're hitting bottom of the barrel is when uh, you're, you're going towards the, the, that uh, cheap buck way. But yeah, you want to talk about a guy that uh, has some notoriety in and of itself, uh, Jack Pfeffer, and, and his, uh, when he did the knockoff wrestlers, I mean, it didn't do a lot of people any favors, but you could probably tell that level of desperation was there for Fred at the time because of you know the television deals that have, have kind of dried up, the NWA affiliation that got dicey, uh, the relationships with some of the big guns that he helped develop and would later help tell the story of Chicago wrestling. Some of these guys, so I mean, they had major peaks, but then with the big rise uh, came this, this fall, and, uh, you know, and and a guy coming out of the shadows like Jack Pfeffer was kind of just picking up the scraps uh, at the end of it all.
1: Yes, but he, but at the that, but around 1964, he brought in a chief uh, new par- minority partner. William Franklin Atlas, who we all know as Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder. Those guys had just opened up their own wrestling promotion in Indianapolis, Championship Wrestling of Indiana, which which had the moniker WWA, World Wrestling uh, Association. So, you know, they came in started <clears throat> excuse me started appearing on some of the shows. of course, they probably pay had to pay suffer, not suffer uh, Kohler to joined the the club uh, then again too that gave some presumably gave Kohler some cash to to, to zoom and hang on some more. But the fourth wheel in this is Laverne Clarence Gagne, who in 1965 was brought in, and he totally bought out Kohler. And, of course, I don't have to do a a long discussion for you guys of Vern Gagne playing Mm -hmm. college football at Minnesota, forming the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club, Uh, one of the most prominent AWA champions. So now we have these three guys. So the Chicago Wrestling Club was created in late 1965. The owners of record on paper, and my understanding is a wrestler could not be a promoter or own a wrestling company. So we have two owners here, Robert A. Luce, the longtime photographer and publicist, and buddy Lee clips of the quad cities who also ha- happens to be married to the niece of Mary Ga- Ganya Very Ganya wife of Vern so th- those are on paper and each one of them does their some of their part you know loose handled mainly chicago and uh um, Cliff handles the quad cities and sometimes Rockford, some of those up. So that's the formation of the company with the, with the three guys. And, uh, so, so you know, it was, uh, I hope that gives everybody a little idea of how it all started.
0: Yeah. And how the pieces all kind of fit together and how they had pri- previous affiliations. I mean, what a feeling it is for uh, a guy like Vern Gagne who did cut his teeth and, and get his name out and, and his face out to national audiences during the Dumont era to be able to come back and have uh, the money and the power to to buy out uh, Fred Kohler and to kind of help it, to put this guy, thing all together. And you have Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder, two uh, superstars in the business who came out of the world of football. And you you talk about Bob Luce. I I mean, this is a guy I've been finding out little bits and pieces about through the years. I've seen some of the stuff on YouTube with his interviews and his his art of promotion. But uh, I want to talk. This guy is just a curious character to me uh, in regards to... uh, pro wrestling history and most especially here, uh, in the Chicago, Sh- greater Chicagoland area, just, uh, what kind of an impact player he was just with his presence and what he did for, uh, the CWC, the Chicago wrestling club.
1: Well, uh, we thought he was the promoter. I mean, they would say promoter, Bob Yep. but you know, uh, in real life, bruiser, Daniel Snyder called the shots. But anyway, uh, Bob Luce had a lot of innovations at the International Amphitheater. Starting in 1977, he started using entrance music when wrestlers would walk to the ring. Now, it was the Miko TV version of the Star Wars thing. They, they used that every time wrestlers would walk to the ring that's, you know, that's an early thing, you know, having, you know, you can imagine sitting at the International Amphitheater with 9,000 people and the Nico Disco version <laughs> cranks up and you're splitting volume. And the crowd really got hyped. Uh, Bob Luce actually uh, started a physical wrestling hall of fame in the Southwest Mezzadine. Of the International Amphitheater, it had photos from his wrestling life publication, and uh, there was a there was a roster of Hall of Fame wrestlers. You know, typical Bruiser, Ganya Snyder, all those people that wrestled for Kobler in the 1950s, all the way up to you know, including the AWA stars. And what was fun for me was. Bob Luce would stage, would hold a pre-match dinner party at the Sirwine room of the Stockyard Inn, right next to the amphitheater. So this is, well, for $9.95, you got a steak dinner, you know, with salad and potato, a program to the match, and a mezzanine ticket. And usually one of the, uh, either Bob Luce or wrestler Johnny Case or someone like that would go to your table and give you your program and shoot the breeze with you. So that was that was a pretty nice, uh, you know, I remember I did that. I was in, my parents took me in high school. That was a pretty big deal. The oh. next, anyway, so that's what some of the things Bob Luce did at the amphitheater. On TV, starting in 1971, he had his own uh, startup television show. Which uh, we'll get into later, but he, he he literally used pop music. The theme song of the show was uh, from the from the artist, the sound of Philadelphia, which people would know more familiarly with uh, the Soul Train theme. So that would start the show. Bob would use pop music, such as the song Fire. From the crazy world of Arthur Brown. That was used whenever the chic was, a film of the chic was shown. How perfect. You know, there's the song The Crusher by a group called The Novas. And we know who that was used for. And Bob Lynch started studio interviews in a set, you know, in the decade prior to Tuesday Night Kite. In the WWF, this studio set would be used, obviously, and effectively for publicity stunts for the matches. You know, Bobby Heenan gets into it with Pepper Gomez, or Moose Cholak is clobbered in the head by Don Fargo. Other stuff in this show was having a hold of the week, where wrestlers, Scientific wrestlers come up, and they demonstrate a hold of how to get out of it. So he did a lot of innovative things uh, uh, for the Chicago Wrestling Club.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I want to talk back to uh, the startup of the Chicago Wrestling Club. It was uh, their debut show uh, back to uh, January of 1966, January 8th. At the international famous uh, Chicago International Amphitheater. Let's talk about the card, but let's also give us uh, the listener an idea of uh, the makeup and what the International Amphitheater was like, not only structurally, but the atmosphere once you got in there, as you were walking in, as you were in the arena. Well, talk about the energy of the uh, amphitheater as well as the debut show here for the Chicago Wrestling Club. Sure,
1: the International Amphitheater was built probably in the 1920s. It was directly east of the former Union Stockyards, where thousands of hogs and cattle were met their final ending every day, and you can imagine the aroma that that the wind blew over. And of course, the International Livestock Exposition was held every year in the amphitheater. That's the amphitheater had a uh, it looked like a inside of a big barn with a pointed roof, and of course, it has a great musical history: Beatles, Elvis, Sinatra, every uh, every rock and roll band in history. And it just was a place where working class, blue collar people can go and have a good time. Uh, you know, it was it was dubbed a shot in a beer place. They didn't serve wine or champagne there. Usually the cheapest brand of semi-warm beer. And uh, so that was the international amphitheater. Of course, it's most famous for the 1968 presidential Democratic National Convention, where, uh, where there were riots elsewhere in downtown Chicago. Hubert Humphrey was nominated, and that gave Chicago a black eye. many years, but it was at this amphitheater that the first card was staged, and all three owners had a main event, Bruiser against Gene Kaniski, fresh from winning the NWA belt, Wilbur against Johnny Valentine, and Vern against Chris Markoff. They uh, implemented a graduated playoff system, where a lot of wrestling companies went with. So basically, the higher you are up in the card, the bigger percentage that you received, and especially if you were an owner, because their payoff system also included uh, payoffs for the owners, irrespective of if if they were on the card. So let's say Bruiser and Snyder, were in. Were wrestling on a given night in Indianapolis, and Vern was in the main event in Chicago. Well, Woolper and Dick still got a, still got a payoff from that card. Plus the dividends from the pro, uh, profits of the Chicago Wrestling Club. So that that was the, the debut card. Of course, I mentioned that this organization was a consolidation of the AWA and the WWA, and the decision was, well, we only can have one champion. So the two champions faced off uh, in three matches early in 1966. Those champions were Mad Dog Bashan, and for the AWA and Dick the Bruiser for the WWA. Well, and ended up Bruce uh, Mad Dog prevailing, and and so the AWA won out in Chicago. With this, only the AWA belts were from that point on shown on television in Chicago, or at the International Amphitheater. No WWA belts were brought into the amphitheater or shown. And the Indianapolis tape that was sent to Chicago. So that I think that's the the big thing. You could, so now it is an, uh, predominantly an AWA town. We don't see the WWA titles there, uh, but it's uh, a good start for the organization.
0: And that brings with it some pretty high-profile talent and feuds. Uh, with this uh, AWA being primarily recognized here uh, for their titles, their world titles, their tag team titles. Uh, I mean, when you bring in tag teams in that at that point. Like a Larry Henning or a and Harley Race, I mean those are that's you know when you put them together with uh, say Addictive Bruiser and the Crusher, I mean you're talking uh, some pretty good main events, some very good talent, and and just the reason why people keep going on out to the uh, the amphitheater and the various arenas because this this definitely had box office all over it.
1: There were seven main events with those with those that pitted those teams against each other from 1966 to 1968, both of them held the AWA tag titles multiple times. It was really a rough and tumble brawl. Uh, and uh, it's ironical that Race and Hennig were called the Dolly Sisters
2: <laughs>
1: uh, by Bruiser and Crusher. But those guys, Hennig and Race, were the most technically trained, Wrestlers in real life, but talk about a burn burner of a uh, feud. I, I'm I'm going to quote the late Oliver Humphrey thing that said, uh, "Man, uh, when those guys squared off, the fans went ache shit." <laughs> It's that yeah. big,
0: that big fight feel. I mean, you had that in the tag teams, uh, you know, with the, with the big matches, but you also had uh, one of the owners, one of the main guys, Vern Gagne, the AWA champion at the time. Uh, he had some of his fair share of uh, marquee matchups in the greater Chicagoland area with uh, a man by the name of, well, Dick Byer. Of course, he threw him under the hood. He was Dr. X. He was also, of course, well-known as the Destroyer. Let's talk about how um, important and how marquee those matchups were uh, with with uh, Vern, who had the AWA Championship at the time, with, with Dick Byer.
1: Well, I just wanted to, I threw out a couple. You know, there were many opponents and many tag team matches. I, when I sit back from my recollection. Uh, watching on TV and maybe about once a year, twice a year going to matches. That that feud between Ganya and Dr. X was the main feud of the 60s in Chicago, in my uh, opinion. Destroyer hit. Uh, uh, Bayer as the Destroyer did uh, wrestle Byrne first as the Destroyer, but then he switched over to Dr. X and it had something to do with, well, once if he would ever take the mask off, he wouldn't want to have to take the mask off as a destroyer and lose the ability to use that gimmick elsewhere. But anyway, the feud and the buildup was amazing. Dr. X would sit in the TV audience in the Minneapolis stu- studio. He'd eventually interfere. They built him up, defeating Bruiser and Crusher in Chicago and then they had two main events this is Byrne and Dr. X in 1968 and it was a a battle between collegiate wrestlers who were at the top of their game in the pros and that was those were two men, they had twice in 1968 and of course they wrestled all over the AWA territory too I wanted to give special mention to two guys that don't get a lot of publicity in the history of both the AWA and the WWA. This is the team of Mitsu Arakawa and Dr. Moto. You may remember Dr. Moto as Tor Kamada in other territories, but they had the distinction of holding, uh, both the EWA and the WWA tag team titles uh, for a period there. And, of course, both titles were uh, gained, regained by the Bruiser and the Crusher. But, you know, those guys, you need two to tangle. And, you know, that still World War II, I think, was in the mem- memory of fans. And, you know, the evil Japanese character went over big, you know, throwing the salt. Using the karate chops, all that kind of stuff. So, anyway, those are the, the ones I want to just mention about in Chicago. I mean, they had about 14, 15 cards a year, mostly, almost always on Friday and Saturday nights. Both AWA and w, uh, WA sent the best talent they could. I Every mean, once in a while, there may have been an AWA. A card running in Milwaukee or a W.W.A. in Indianapolis but we got a very good lineup during the 1960s with the Chicago Wrestling Club.
0: This is Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett talking with Richard Vychek about the Chicago Wrestling Club, pro wrestling in the great windy city of Chicago from 1966 all the way up to its end. And and we are just wrapping up the 1960s and heading into the 1970s. What year was the first time that you actually had a chance to step foot in the amphitheater? And what was the the big marquee matchups uh, when you went? And and tell us that story before we get into the 70s. That's okay. First one, April 16th,
1: 1966. Danya versus Johnny Valentine, Henning and Ray versus Bruiser and Pat O'Connor. So that was the first one. And I liked it so much, I must have had good grades, because the parents took me on uh, the next one, April 21st, where it was Bruiser against Mad Dog Bashan in the third of their match in a non-title bout in a Congo death match, which it has the similarities of a Texas That match, you know, one minute rest between falls, you know, that kind of thing. So those are the first two. And when you see, you know, I saw, I didn't realize at the time, I was seeing cream of the crop talent. Uh, So that, that leaves a big impression with you.
0: Mhm and yeah and we're here talking about these uh, great memories uh and and the the wonderful rich history of Chicago wrestling uh and we're going to go in uh, we're going to go from uh, black and white to technicolor we're going to head into the uh, decade of the 1970s and uh, talk about some of the things that developed in that decade. Uh, one of which was uh, these these big super cards uh, throughout the decade that were put on. We'll talk about some of the shows uh, at Comiskey Ballpark and also at Soldier Field. But first of all, let's talk about uh, well the uh, the on air figurehead, the, the promoter, I should say, Bob Luce, and some of the stuff. We 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 got into Bob a little bit with his. Uh, talking a little bit about his life and his uh, show on WSNS. Let's let's go fill in and get us into the 1970s uh, with the, the history of the Chicago Wrestling Club.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in October 1971, Bob Luce started his own separate wrestling program on WSNS-TV Channel 44, mm-hmm. where he would show WWA and AWA clips, local promos, and filmed highlights From the amphitheater so some of those clips you know were later on ESPN and then some of the they were in some of the WWF video series you know so that really gave us a a nice uh, addition besides the standard WWA TV with Sam Medecker or the AWA with Roger Kent you know Marty O'Neill Mean gene that series, so we got a triple wrestling shows every week for many weeks, but I do want to mention, I, if, if you talk about the 70s and the Chicago Wrestling Club, the big, it could best be summarized by four big outdoor wrestling cards, which were the, they were getting so big, or doing so good, they had the idea, hmm, wonder if we could, uh, how much money we can make if we did a card at a ballpark or a stadium, which would have double the at least double or triple the capacity of the international amphitheater. So, I was going to go through the four major outdoor wrestling cards from those years.
0: Oh, great! Let's. Uh, Were we going to start off with uh, the big event held in August fourteenth, uh, nineteen seventy? Uh, involving Vern Gagne with a fellow amateur talent, uh, who, well, let's just say he wasn't, uh, you know, going on his amateur merits. He he was taking on a bit of a character. Let's talk about uh, who was in that main event against Vern Gagne. Let's talk about that event at Comiskey Park. It was
1: against Baron von Raschke, and what a uh, development he had wrestling at Nebraska, setting up the rings for Vern, referee matches in the AWA when I interviewed him for the Bruiser book he did not know that he was going to be facing Vern at the ballpark until Sam Menneker put the microphone in his face for interviews and said "Baron, how are you going to handle Vern Danya at White Sox Park <laughs> so he was just floored over that uh of course, the, the main event that time was a AWA tag team showdown. Mad Dog and his brother, the Butcher, Vashon, against Bruiser and Crusher in a cage. Mad Dog and Butcher won titles in Chicago the year before, and the buildup was tremendous. We I remember they even used uh, your local promoter, Wally Carbo, in the Chicago... Uh, the Chicago prom- promo interviews, you know, because Mad Dog would say, wait a minute, what's this I hear we're going to be in the cage? What do you think we are, animals? And, of course, Wally Carr who came in, if you guys don't show up for that match, you'll be suspended and you'll lose belts. So I remember Wally was even brought on that. In fact, a lot of, some, and some of them, White Sox shows, Wally was even on the payoff list because he was such a big um, uh, important guy in the AWA. But that was 1970 and of course to our shock, Mad Dog and Butcher maintain uh, maintained their titles and won the cage match to the uh, dismay of the working class stiffs in the White Sox park that night. And I think I've read that they had a Box office gross over a hundred thousand that night. They put they put seats uh, on the field. The ring was at home plate that time, and yeah, that, I think that was probably well. They didn't beat the Fred Kohler, Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor, but that was probably the first time they had a hundred thousand dollar box office gross since then. So that was 1970
0: at White Sox Park. And now we move on to 1972 uh, as part of, of the, the big events. And this wasn't at White Sox Park. And this kind of surprised me. Uh, there was an event at Soldier Field. And then this uh, event had a a, a a big fight feel to it as well uh, that uh, had had not only burned Gagne in the main event, but uh, a man who had just previously, uh, the year prior, had been in New York, uh, somewhat of a transitional champion, but he was the man who ended Bruno San Martino's reign. Uh, this was a big match here. Soldier Field, Vern Gagne, Ivan Koloff. Let's paint the picture of this uh, Soldier Field card.
1: Well, the, uh, the ring was set up in the south end zone, so they played basically to a the south bowl end zone seat. Uh, you know, this is Richard, the edit, editorial comment here now. They tried, before wrestling p- p- tickets would, would never be more than $10. All of a sudden now, they wanted $30, 25 $20 for this wrestling card. It was, you know, it had 10 great matches with almost, which, oh, 7 out of 10 main event type caliber. But, okay. A lot of people stayed away from this. Yeah, they got their $100,000 gross. Uh, luckily for us, Bob Loops filmed the main events on this card. And, of course, the biggest match was another cage between none other than Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher mm-hmm. against Black Jacks Mulligan Lanza Latina. And they brought in the special referee, Jersey Joel Walcott, former, I think he was a heavyweight champion boxer, to maintain order. And this, you know, was actually the biggest bloodbath, I think. Uh, Four of the five combatants, you know, uh, got banged up for this. Uh, It was a a, a very... uh, almost shocking match Uh, and I consider that if there was one tag team match in the history of Chicago wrestling that I would say this was it it was that 1972 tag team match in the cage Uh, but that was uh, that was the White Sox uh, excuse me the Soldier Field card uh, uh, Vernon Gagne and Andre the Giant was on the card too he faced Larry Henning, and butcher Bashan, a handicap match that was uh I think the second time Andre was in Chicago, so there was quite a uh quite a lineup of stars on that card too
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that was september first nineteen
2: seventy two
0: mm-hmm. as we move on uh I, I want to talk about uh, you know. The next big card, uh, which was uh, of the four that you had recommended, uh, was in 1974 in September, uh, September, another big event, September 7th. And this actually, uh, you know, was a, a, a big time match between two, uh, mostly for the most part, uh, scientific uh, fan favorite wrestlers, uh, Vern Gagne and Billy Robinson. What made this uh, seem even more significant is uh, that some of this uh, stuff some of the, the footage was actually, there was footage shot that ended up in a film, well, it ended up uh, beforehand in, for the movie The Wrestler. Let's talk about The Wrestler, The Connection, and then let's talk about this, the Comiskey Park uh, show.
1: Well, that, The Wrestler was a 1973 motion picture. Uh, Vern Gagne was the executive producer uh, and star of the show. He played, I can't remember their names now, but both Billy Robinson and Vern Gagne played professional wrestler rivals. And the main match, the main event of the movie was Gagne versus Billy Robinson with uh, Vern Gagne prevailing uh, in the movie. Well, then right after that, they started in Chicago. Uh, I remember being at the amphitheater on July 20th of 1974, and Robinson wins the belt. The beat's burned. Now, the, the the decision is later reversed. But we went, a lot of a lot of fans went home happy that night. And, you know, Robinson's hand was raised. I guess, you know, maybe there was uh, Ganya's foot tangled in the ropes. So they had a rematch at, at Soldier Field, excuse me, at White Sox Park on September seventh, 1970 Four and Ganya won, you know here's what you know here I could tell the finish. Robinson is standing on the on the ring apron, uh he puts his foot over the bottom rope, Ganya drop kicks him, he, Robinson falls back, his legs twisted, in the rope he gets counted out, but anyway, you know uh. It's the golden rule. He who he with the gold rules. So, so, but anyway, that was a that to me that was the the best display of scientific wrestling ever in the history of, in, in the history of the Chicago Wrestling Club. Those two matches, and uh, I just and it's too bad. I this is Richard editorializing again. I think uh, Robinson deserved a crack holding the title for a while, the AWA title, uh, but he still had a magnificent contribution to the AWA.
0: Yeah, one of the great uncrowned champions. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I'm of the opinion, too, that uh, there could have been a nice... A few, you know, a nice rain for, for Billy. There there could be a good potential, uh, you know, rematch with Burn and guys like Bachwinkle and Stevens and whoever came, you know, into the territory. It would have worked for a while. And another match you mentioned, uh, was about Dick, or didn't mention, Dick the Bruiser and Boba Brazil and Bobby Heenan against the Sheik all getting together. And you want to talk about a guy who was all over Chicagoland, uh, you know, a a man who got so much heat, whether it be in the amphitheater or the ballparks. It was Bobby Heenan, especially in regards to the guy that kind of got him into the business in the W.W.A., Dick the Bruiser.
1: Yes, this was uh, at this this point in time, uh, Heenan was the manager of the stable of villains in the W.W.A. Uh, within, later this month, Heenan would shift back to the A.W.A. in a payoff dispute with Bruiser. But he continued to be a thorn in Bruiser's side throughout the Chicago Wrestling Club history. Uh, Bruiser and Heenan, there was, uh, you know, is true. Heenan uh, got his start. Uh, he was brought into the business by Brewster. And, uh, yeah, this was one of the uh, uh, exciting bouts, you know. I mean, the crowd just would just wait for Heenan to be pulled into the ring and be whipped from pillar to post. He had such great
0: heat, and he was just so amazing. I mean, people talk about his managing skills, but he was quite good in the ring, too, and that definitely could help out with some of the stuff he did and some of the uh, the, the things he was able to do as a manager.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, like he said, I used to wrestle like a manager and manage like a wrestler. That was sort of his philosophy that he said. And, uh, you know, when he passed away last year, uh, very few wrestlers got showered with so many accolades. I mean, you know, it's the to the level like when Bruce, when Bruno Sammartino passed away earlier this year. I mean, Heenan's uh, that no, there's no doubt who's the number one manager in the history of professional wrestling, and we were very fortunate for about a 16, 17-year period for him showing up for the majority of those international amphitheater cards and other other venues as sponsored by the Chicago Wrestling Club.
0: Let's uh, talk about one more uh, big event. Uh, It was in the bicentennial year, the summer of 1976, in late August on the 27th. Uh, It was back to Comiskey. Uh, for, for an attraction that you mentioned uh, on a, a previous uh, card that we talked about here, uh, getting his shot, uh, getting him um, against a world champion, and also Bobby Heenan playing into this, we're talking about uh, one of the big headliners of the Comiskey Show, Nick Bockwinkel taking on Andre the Giant.
1: Yes, and to my knowledge is this, this was maybe the second time <clears throat> very early in the in the career of Heenan and Andre. This is an early meeting, and uh, you know on, Heenan played it perfectly. You know, jumping, trying to put a sleeper hold on Andre the Giant, and I and Andre reaches back with one hand and just throws him off like a sack of potatoes, and with Heenan doing a great bump. That was a great. Uh, that was an interesting main event, of course. Uh, the Backwinkle is the champion at the time and the second bout on this card, another cage match uh, I think all four of those I'm trying to think, well three of the four ballpark shows or stadium shows had cage matches. This was where Lanza and Duncan defended against Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. He even got with and bloodied, but the, the the Texans held on to the titles on this. One short mention, too. Starting in 75, uh, the Chicago Wrestling Club would stage what it called the Super Bowl of Wrestling, usually held in November or December. They would have title bouts, imported talent, extra magic, Extra matches. So that's a little minor footnote, but that was the peak, the uh, high end, the uh, top of the mountaintop for the Chicago Wrestling Club in the 1970s. hmm. <clears throat>
0: And, of course, as we open up into the 1980s for the Chicago Wrestling Club, I, I kind of call this the long goodbye, or you can refer yeah. to it as, as fading away. Um, what was uh, considered to be a last hurrah of sorts was uh, a show that was put on in the summer of 1980 at uh, a place that we mentioned many times in the, as far as marquee 70 shows. Was back to the ballpark uh, at Comiskey Park, I guess, nineteen eighty. That was pre uh, Disco Demolition, uh, Comiskey Park. Uh, well, let's talk about that. What was referred to as a last hurrah. Who was on the card? Uh, what was uh, when, when did, did the winds of change start to happen as early as nineteen eighty? As far as uh, crowds, or were crowds uh, still still quite big at the time uh, of this Comiskey Ballpark event? No, those I was at. The,
1: I was I was at that nineteen eighty. Crowds were nowhere near 76 and 74. The, uh, you know, every promotion has its downs, you know. But this, uh, the, the, the key bout was Vern trying to regain the title against Buckwinkle. He promised, if I lose, I'll retire. But, it, but, you know, Vern wins the belt for the last time, and all the good guy wrestlers, storm onto the field and carry Vern out on their shoulders. And that was a very, you know, when you think Ganya had been probably first wrestled in Chicago, 1949, 1950, something like that. Uh, it was a nice uh, pinnacle to his uh, wrestling career. A key development, though, at this time, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't see this in the 70s or 60s, is Up-and-coming AWA star Jerry Blackwell defeats Dick the Bruiser. And Bruiser, an aging Bruiser now, let's say he's at least 50 years old, puts Blackwell over. And you folks in the AWA know the contribution that Jerry Blackwell eventually made in the AWA. And I always look back to this. Wow, at the AWA... Bruiser put him over, you know, and I thought that was a very, you know, that was Bruiser in that case, you know, I think uh, helped the business going forward for the AWA Mm -hmm. because of his reputation in Chicago. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is always good when you can have that uh, sort of cooperation with an older wrestler who, I mean, in some cases, a lot of them hold on. And, and that could be the case with the territories of some of the promoters that held on and as the world was changing they weren't quite going with the winds of change as as quickly and, and, and as uh you know on, on point as you know guys that ended up taking over the reins of what was wrestling most definitely uh, Vince McMahon
1: mm-hmm. we had a couple other cards here was one card of note the Otto Vance experiment ended in the at the amphitheater on August, October 2nd, 1982. I think it was 40 odd days he was the champion. But, you know, eventually the final Chicago wrestling card at the amphitheater was on February 12th, 1983. And the main event was Hogan versus Jesse Ventura in arm wrestling. Andy Kaufman appeared on the card as did Jerry Lawler. You know, over the years, WWA wrestlers appeared less frequently on the Chicago Wrestling Club. My thought is, well, I can understand Burns' thinking. Why share the profits with Dick the Bruiser uh, when most of the talent now is from my guys? And so eventually, Bur- Dick and Wilbur were bought out. The next card, about uh, two months later, at the UIC Pavilion, only the AWA guys were on the card. Rarely uh, did WW guys ever appear on these cards. And when I for the Bruiser book, Larry Lasowski said to me, "You know, Ganya didn't need the AWA anymore in Chicago. We had, we were." The AWA was still a major territory with an international presence. You know, Bruiser was sub-regional at best. Uh, And also at this time, Bob Luce no longer plugged AWA on his show, and Wilbur Snyder retired. So there was no longer a Chicago wrestling club. Now the... uh, So, but when you look back, over those years, you know, the AWA still continued to operate on its own till 1990-91, but, you know, they eventually lost their best talent in TV to the WWF. Uh, the WWA in Indianapolis was already in decline, and they only lasted a few more years uh, running in Indianapolis. And, you know, an epilogue on this, Bruiser and Snyder both passed away in Florida in 1991. Bob Luce passed away in 2007, while Vern passed away in 2015. So in the day, the Chicago Wrestling Club was an exceptional wrestling group with a rich history. And I just, you know, I just thought, here's an interesting uh, chapter in wrestling.
0: Oh, most, most definitely. Yeah, and I do want to thank you because that. that I mean, in in this uh, hour of wrestling memories, we we definitely. Uh have uh, enlightened our listeners and have educated our listeners uh, and maybe even help some of these uh, you know, aspiring historians and those who are curious to go check out a little bit more about the, uh, the great history of the Chicago wrestling club. Uh, some of the main characters uh, involved with the development of it, of course, Bob Luce, I mean, what a, what a golden time for professional wrestling. And, of course, it was just unfortunate with the falling of the territories and uh, the rise fully of the WWE and just a new way of thinking for pro wrestling. But it was, it's just a shame, you know, that it had to end when it did. But thankfully, there's people around maintaining the spirit and uh, the memory of just how cool and how wonderful it was from going to those shows and watching the stuff on TV.
1: Well, uh coincidentally at the time when the Chicago Wrestling Club went out, well, Bruiser, Snyder and Ganya were, you know, uh in their fifties now. They can't you know, how can those guys compete with Hulk Hogan, uh Rick Flair Rick Flair in his early thirties? You get my drift? <laughs>
0: Yeah, they were they were getting uh, aged out. It was just the reality of it. So, uh, not, there,
1: you know, all you know, all those. Uh, so anyway, I still because I because I lived a lot of it, I have uh, great memories of that, and uh, I try to communicate and show people what it was like in the day. Oh, and, and, and we
0: are most appreciative here at Wrestling Memories then and now. And I got to ask, uh, are you are you working on anything uh, at present? I mean, your book, uh, Dick the Bruiser, I'm going to mention that again, give it another plug. Uh, Bruiser, the World's Most Dangerous Wrestler uh, on Crowbar Press was uh, such a wonderful read. It just makes me wonder, is there something uh, you're going to follow up with? I mean, this hour alone spent talking about pro wrestling in Chicago was uh, fascinating uh, stuff mm-hmm. I mean it makes me want to get more or get something else that you're going to write or something else that you're discovering what do you, do you have anything well, on the back burner
1: no and uh, you know as much as I'd like to you know uh, the, just since the bruiser an idea uh, since the bruiser book came, was published twenty two people whom I interviewed passed away wow besides besides the acknowledgements I have a whole, another list that of people that, in other words, the sources. You know, I waited too long to do this. You know, I I, I don't mind admitting it. Uh, so you know that's that's the downside. You know, trying to get the insights from people that were there. What was Ganya like? What did Bruiser? What did you know? What, all that kind of stuff. It's harder and harder when. There aren't people there to talk about
0: it. No, that's, that's... And that's that. I
1: waited too long to do the Bruiser book, and that was a seven-year part-time job. Hmm. So, now I could I could give a plug. There's a book on Gene Kanisky, uh coming out by uh, Steve Varier. I hope I said it right. Yeah,
0: I think you got show? that. I think you got that right. Yeah, Steve. Uh, that, and
1: that he let me review and write. Uh, and suggestions for, for his book. And thats I'm sure that's coming out pretty soon. So yes. I, I highly recommend, recommend that because I've already seen it front to cover and reviewed every page.
2: Mm. So
1: that's one I'm looking forward to seeing the final version of
0: yeah I'm definitely looking forward to that and having him back on the program to to discuss that and I'd love to have you back on the program again if you decide if you want to talk about a segment of pro wrestling or a a topic matter I mean I like that we focused on a certain area because it kind of keeps things uh, intact and on on, on course and and it's very fun to just listen and learn and and kick back because not only am I a host of a program I'm sitting here under the learning tree uh, and I'm never never going to stop trying to learn more and more about those wrestling memories and it's It's so wonderful to have guys like yourself out there that are so knowledgeable and and, and are so very much involved with with sharing such knowledge. It's the tip of the hat to you, my friend. Well,
1: thank you, very and thanks for having me on, and I'll work on a (laughs) follow-up.
0: Absolutely, my friend. For Richard Vaychuk, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now.